You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 18th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show, India blames Pakistan for the violence in Indian-administered Kashmir after four soldiers die in a gunfight battle just days after 40 paramilitary troops were killed in a car bomb attack. This morning, we have all now resigned from the Labour Party. This has been a very difficult, painful but necessary decision. Breaking away, seven MPs from Britain's opposition Labour group resign in protest over the leader's handling of Brexit and accusations of anti-Semitism. My guests John Everard and Robert Fox will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including it was meant to showcase the unity between America and her allies, but instead the Munich Security Conference has exposed divisions in the transatlantic relationship. What went wrong? All that, plus Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, Jimmy Carter, and then Barack Obama. Could Donald Trump become the fifth American president to win a Nobel Peace Prize? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliette Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the former British diplomat John Everard. He was also formerly the British ambassador to Belarus, the British ambassador to Uruguay and the British ambassador to North Korea. And Robert Fox is a distinguished journalist. He's also the defence editor of the London Evening Standard. So welcome, gentlemen, both of you to the programme. Now, a gun battle in an area of Indian-administered Kashmir has once again heightened tensions between India and Pakistan. Four Indian soldiers died in the Pulwama district just days after a car bomb was detonated in the same area, killing 40 Indian security personnel. Jaish e Mohammed, a Pakistan-based jihadist group which wants to separate Kashmir from India, claimed responsibility for the bombing. The Indian government blames Pakistan for the upsurge in violence. And the worry now is how the authorities are likely to respond. Now, these attacks have mobilised the Indian public, which is calling for revenge. So, Will the Prime Minister Narendra Modi actually give in to those demands or is he likely to be a bit more cautious? Uh, Modi not noted for his caution. Uh, I don't think it's a question of his giving in to these demands. I suspect that his instincts will be to strike. The problem he faces is strike what and strike how. Uh, remember way back uh, when the well, this cycle of violence of course, started back in 1989, uh, but uh, the, the most recent attack after Bodhanwani was killed, uh, the Indians launched a surgical strike across the border into Pakistan. At that point, they had identifiable targets on which they could move a swift and withdraw. This time they don't. Moreover, as it happens, this news comes just as Pakistan has, has signed $20 billion worth of contracts with Saudi Arabia. Pakistan is actually walking tall right now and India might hesitate before it tries anything uh, say kinetic. Okay, so, so Robert Fox, it's, it's a question of how he's going to respond if he decides to use force and where, but also when? Yes, uh, from Modi's record, he isn't going to hang around for too long. Uh, but I think um, serious allies, and we don't know whether America is a serious ally anymore in this, and I'm not being facetious, um, will be saying caution because this is part of a 
if I could mix a metaphor, ever-expanding mechanism, clockwork mechanism, things are not going at all well in Afghanistan, and things will be exacerbated even more there if America pulls out, as is expected. Uh, a withdrawal announcement by Twitter is expected in the next few days or weeks. Um, you're quite right, looking at the terrain, it is very difficult, and th th this has been a very serious attack. The attack lasted uh, over days. Uh, altogether, as we come on air, they're saying 55 uh, 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 Indian militia lives have been lost, plus the four soldiers. Things are not going at all well, and as we know, Jammu Kashmir is one of the great intractables. It's been an intractable since the inception of uh, not only the, uh, the, the, the independence of Pakistan and India, but also of the UN as well. There, it's, it's one of these Rubik's Cube questions. Some are easier, some are not, but it's like Cyprus. It's been there from the beginning. But if there is a misstep here, as John were, were, uh, 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 were saying, it could have a very, very unfortunate uh, vibration um, in, in other areas. This is a very delicate area to go back to the thing taking it uh, regionally looking at the connection because it's not only particularly given the groups involved it's not only pakistan india it's pakistan in india and the strategic depth in afghanistan and we just haven't been paying enough attention to yeah, it yeah because i mean I, I mentioned in the introduction jayesh in muhammad who claimed responsibility for the bomb attack so the suspicion is that they were also responsible for the shooting dead of these soldiers i mean who who actually is behind them because these groups as we know they don't operate in isolation they normally have quite a few string players who are guiding them supplying them with the weapons <laughs> no, no, if we could ask a question like that we would be highly paid consultants to the indian government uh, no, nobody <laughs> Maybe knows they know. <laughs> well they, they they may know they're certainly claiming to know they certainly claim they got hard intelligence linking uh, Jaj Mohammed yeah. to pakistan the yeah, problem is that the indian government links everything to pakistan so that is not actually uh, sufficient ground so it's for possible belief. that pakistan doesn't actually support them it may support them ideologically but it doesn't take it beyond the words it's possible uh, again we're, we're probably not going to find out anytime soon and I, I, I noticed that in none of the photographs of the attack are any of Judge Mohammed's weapons on display. So we can't even judge from that. Well, that's exactly how they've looked at Judge Mohammed before and Lashkar Taiba, who are linked with them. And most famously, which is the big strike, of course, um, uh, in uh, Pakistan-India relations with the Mumbai attack of, two th uh, of 2008. But I completely agree with John we tend to be simplistic in drawing straight lines between this group that group no is is, is uh yash muhammad run by rogue elements or not so rogue elements of uh isi which was a bit of a trope with with western uh, uh journalists i'm afraid it's too easy it's it, it is much more complex than that and again sorry that's why the whole region i'm not going to go a little bit further than afghanistan but going to the north to the stands it is the elements of it's too cheap to even call them non-state actors. They're actors who act with a very coherent sense of community and support, but with acknowledged or not acknowledged at times state-sponsored sponsors. Is this important to the stability of the region and therefore a, a global stability? That is the question, and it's not being it's not being answered so there, at there the moment. But a precipitous counter strike by Modi, I'm taking your question, and it's absolutely the right one, could be terribly, terribly, not only injudicious, but it could be quite dangerous. And, and, let's, and let's take the, take the idea of the strike, because as you pointed out, Robert, 
Initially, we were told that about 40 elite soldiers were killed. That death toll has now risen. Now, that's humiliating for Narendra Modi. He's actually projected himself as a strong man, a guy who doesn't bulk away from making tough decisions. And an election is coming up. Again, that public outrage. So, yeah, he will go for this hard. The one thing he can't do is nothing. He has to react in some way. Both but, he, but has he been humiliated by this attack, given that he's lost over 40 elite soldiers? That, that doesn't well, imp- well, imply that he doesn't really have a grip on the security situation on the ground, not as total as he'd like it to be. It, it certainly shows he lacks grip. These soldiers weren't elite. These were paramilitaries. I mean, there were much more elite units in the Indian Army than these. Uh, the, has he been humiliated? He's been angered. And he has. it's been shown that his claims to have Pakistan, sorry, rubbish, uh, to have Kashmir, that's a Freudian slip for you, uh, under control are actually unfounded. So he has to react. As we've just been saying, the big question is how? Does he go for a military strike or does he intensify the Indian campaign to isolate and humiliate Pakistan internationally through diplomatic channels? Hmm. And, and I guess as well, Robert, that one of the things that you can't divorce from this are accusations that perhaps India is feeding the violence in Kashmir because of its own human rights approach. Again, this cycle that you're clamping down You're picking on people who speak out against the authorities, jailing them, harassing them, and you're feeding the very monster that you're trying to control. In other words, you're actually providing recruitment fodder for the groups out there. Yes, back to your introduction to this speech, which is absolutely right, that Modi is trying to build on public outcry. Now, again, you're playing with fire here, because if you're going to say yes, and you have a crackdown on this majority Muslim area, what is that going to do for the Muslim population, the domestic m- m- Muslim population in India, which we know is larger than the Muslim population of, of, of Pakistan? It is one of these eternal paradoxes that needs to be uh, treated carefully, and rampant nationalism is not the way to go at it. Unfortunately, it's uh, the vogue, it's the mode of the day uh, 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 at the moment. And also, as you've indicated, that, that, that Saudi has just signed a deal to support Pakistan. That means to support not only Iran Khan, but above all, above all the military. They will not take kindly to this kind of thing, a deliberate provocation of their Muslim ally. John? Yes, I agree with everything that Robert said. Um, Cast the net a bit more widely, uh, one thing that will be worrying New Delhi is that if it does uh, hit back at Pakistan, it is going to force Pakistan back more deeply into the arms of people with whom India is deeply uncomfortable. Saudi Arabia already there. China, of course, waiting in the wings with a huge smile. Remember that Pakistan had to cede a chunk of Kashmir to China after, now which border war was it? Um, There's probably more where that came from, and the Chinese will make a point of robustly supporting Pakistan's cause. India does not want to do anything that brings those two countries close together. Okay, well, let's move on now to matters a bit closer to home. Here, seven MPs from Britain's opposition Labour Party have quit because of the Brexit approach by leader Jeremy Corbyn and concerns over his handling of accusations of anti-Semitism. One of the seven, Luciana Berger, said she was embarrassed and ashamed to stay in the party, while another, Chukaramuna, urged other Labour MPs and those from the governing Conservative Party to join the group in, and I quote, building a new politics. So... Is anyone likely to take him up on his offer? Robert, I mean, look, 
this wasn't really that much of a surprise, was it? Because there have been rumours circulating for a number of days that we're actually going to see a defection of Labour MPs, although I guess that the surprising element was, it, that, was that it was just Labour MPs. It wasn't other Conservatives who stood before the cameras this morning and said, look, we've had enough. There is a particular point with the seven, with most if not all of them, and it is uh, Corbyn's personal mishandling of the anti-Semitism questions. That I'm, I'm, I'm interested that my neighbour, who feels very strongly about this, Margaret Hodge MP, mm. who is Jewish as well, feels very, very strongly about this. Um, I... I'm not sceptical about this. Oh, it's only seven. It, it's not like a breakaway when really big hitters like Shirley Williams, uh, David Owen, and uh, uh, Roy Jenkins, above all, broke away and formed the Social Democrat mm. Party. It's back in the 1980s or something. I think if we... Can we sort of turn to this to say treat this like a patient um, and use a medical analogy this shows there is something really going wrong it's just one more symptom it's the first snuffle of a cold that could be a pneumonia of what is really going wrong with party political in parliamentary politics uh, 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 at the moment because we have forces unleashed by the Brexit referendum which are extremely worrying because if you're thwarted in Parliament and it doesn't matter, it's interesting how it's like the it's like two wings of an army coming around and enveloping the, 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 the centre you get the, the, the far left the neo-Marxists, you get the ultra-nationalists on the right and they say we don't care about Parliament, I've heard an MP say this because what really counts is the people as if he she or whoever they are as an mp have a hotline to what the people have said and nobody understands it there there is a big confidence issue in the whole process and i think we're going to see a lot more trouble in the next four or five weeks uh, mm. regarding this as we come to the deadline for brexit and this is a really interesting point isn't it john because the way it's being reported in the media is that this is a labor party problem but as robert's pointed out that it just misses a much bigger point. The whole system is ill. Their system. And that's being very kind. <laughs> yes, there is an ebbing of confidence in parliamentary democracy. I, th I think it's significant that uh, in their opening statement, the uh, independent group, as they're calling themselves, uh, roundly reaffirmed parliamentary democracy. It's up there, sort of right at the top of uh, their, 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 their statement there. Um, it's, of course, I mean, yes, these seven come from the Labour Party. We all know that the Conservative Party, uh, for different reasons, uh, faces uh, equal uh, uh, fissile tendencies. Uh, and there must be a lot of Tory MPs who are wondering whether now is the moment to walk across and join these people. But why not do it? Because the, these seven actually took their courage in their hands and they walked. They just said, guys, we've had enough. Now, that looks pretty principled if they're being honest enough to admit that, and yet nobody joined them. People are standing on the sidelines playing this almost like a hedge. <laughs> Can I be a bit self-regarding? <laughs> Go ahead. John and I are well-placed with this because we deal with Parliament. We deal with it with outsider, as outsiders. I'm not a lobby correspondent. I've only been one for half, of my 50, half a year of my 52 years in, 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 in journalism. We look at the process with, uh, from the outside. I have to deal with ministers, with parties, with policies with parties and ministers and representatives and deputies, not called MPs, across a whole range of parliaments, by, by the way. And that's why we have a wider perspective of this. What I feel, and I talk intensively to my 
colleagues who are covering parliament and parliamentary politics day in, day out, they've got their noses firmly against the windscreen, firmly against the window, trying to look into Downing Mm. Street, trying to look into the party caucuses, and they're baffled as to what's going on. What I suspect, a job with a diplomatic career has huge experience, but I've worked in Europe extensively for 30 or 40 years. This does feel, I'm not saying it's an earthquake, but it's a beginning of a series of earth tremors. And you can see this kind of, there are vibrations again, which take different forms. The Gilets Jaunes, the Five Star Movement, and then the disappointment with the Five Star Movement in Italy, the Wilders and various other populist parties in in the Netherlands. Something is moving. And what worries worries me is that the vibration could become so severe that we may not be able to control it. And this is an interesting point because, John, let me take this up with you because you've had remarks from from Nigel Farage, who's a former leader of UKIP. He's also recently launched a a political party. And he's basically said that this was a moment of realignment. His words, not mine. Is he right, given that we've, we've had the first of what potentially could be many other earth tremors leading to a much bigger quake? Is this realignment quite possibly? I mean, let's watch and see. Um, seven MPs is actually quite a, a sizable group to leave all at once. The big question, of course, is who joins them, whether the snowball starts to roll. Realignment in Nigel Farage's terms, I hope to God not. Well, I can see what you're going when you say his terms, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, look, what he's effectively saying is we've got a blank canvas here and the runes can go in any direction. But look, if we're going to be very pessimistic about this, in which way will this realignment show themselves once everything finally settles? Well, I think that Farage is on to something and I... Unfortunately, I think I'm forced to be personal about this. And you see it in all parts of the political spectrum, but there is the politics of narcissism. And the politics of narcissism says the narcissism is I, me, the self is more important than those I represent. Mm. The acute crisis in British politics at the moment, and it is in a very British way, is whether you lead or follow those you represent. And at the moment, and it's David Davis, actually, a, a very senior Tory, uh, a former member uh, of Mrs May's government, who said in the end, to the B- on a BBC interview in the past few days, in the end, I don't care what Parliament says because there is always something more powerful and it's called the people and the people support my point of view. This is dangerous stuff, really, really dangerous stuff. And... Um, One of the things is that that the party structures themselves are so fragile. I mean, the Tory Conservative Party has about 125,000 members. Mm -hmm. They determine who roughly half the representatives elected to the British Parliament are going to be. This is ridiculous. Okay, well, let's leave this now, because just in case you've joined us, you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster. My guests are John Everard and Robert Fox. And coming up next, it was meant to showcase the unity between America and her allies. So why did the Munich Security Conference go wrong? Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in The Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. 
Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. Still with me are my guests, John Everard and Robert Fox. Now, the fractured relationship between America and her traditional allies was laid bare for all to see in the 55th Munich Security Conference. A three-day event designed to showcase the unity of all the participants was marked instead by an absence of big ideas to some of the world's major challenges, a fallout between America and Europe over leadership issues, and US concerns over the refusal of France, Germany and the UK to withdraw from the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran. John, some commentators describe this year's security conference as a bit like watching a reality TV show, a harsh judgment. But do you think in some respects it was fair? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, this is, if you like, the reality of what happens at the top of diplomacy. People argue all the time. Um, and for heaven's sake, uh, you know, we've been arguing with the United States ever since I've been in the business. And what's happened this time is that people have gone public on it and turned out, as you say, into a TV show. I don't think Angela Merkel, whose speech drew such attention, in fact said anything that either she hadn't said before or that need make us sit up and, and look surprised. Um, but because she said it right in front of Vice President Pence, of course, the world is, has decided this is a big transatlantic split. I don't think it's quite that way. I think this does business as normal, but this time in the glare of the cameras. But I guess that in some ways, Robert Fox, she could afford to be demob happy, to put it in those terms, because look, she says she's going in 2020, so her success has already been lined up. So I guess from her point of view, she can afford to tell it as it is. I think, However much we may not I, like hearing I think it. With her, with, her, <laughs> with her good Lutheran background, I think Mrs. Merkel would hate to be accused of being demob happy. Actually, you just have to admire her as a states uh, as a stateswoman. Um, and, and she is consistent. She was coherent. And the problem was that she is not only she, but a former vice president, Joe Biden. Point pointed out really that when you had Pence and the, some of the others that were there, they're absolutely incoherent. I mean, what I hear from the Middle East, from all all sides, from colleagues, you know, in the Arab press, talking to strategic advisors and really serious analysts in Israel, it's now America the unreliable. And that is what was underlined by the Munich conference. I don't think it was a failure. I think it's more than a, a showcase. I think it is a genuine uh, talking shop. And I am with John. I think it's very good that these things are rehearsed and a lot of them come out in the open. Mm. There have been great luminaries like Manfred Werner in the past who talked about really what is the future of NATO after the end of the Cold War and so on. And I think... This was a very healthy reality check. A healthy reality check, but I suppose in some ways, um, uh, 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 John, that it really exposed, we knew there were differences between America and the Allies, but I think it also exposed differences amongst the Allies themselves. So in other words, if you lead perhaps a populist government, like in Hungary or Italy or, or Poland, then yes, you're going to back the America first agenda of Donald Trump because it really taps into some of your own issues. But if, on the other hand, if you're part of the liberal Democrat 
democratic bloc, then you're going to be very worried by this. Yes, I mean, this is a pluralist forum with all kinds of different views from all kinds of different people. Interesting, incidentally, that uh, even the, the nationalist populist uh, leaders haven't wholeheartedly endorsed the Trump vision. They, they're still keeping some kind of distance. Um, talking about divisions, of course, we've also seen divisions between the Americans themselves, with a lot of quite senior Americans saying effectively that Vice President Pence made a hash of his speech, made a hash of the conference, uh, to which he's yet to respond. Uh, this is an interesting point, actually, about, about uh, Vice President president's speech i mean who was he talking to was he talking to people in that room or was he actually talking above them in other words to the trump base at home doing his bit to shore up trump's chances in 2020 well even, <laughs> even, even i don't mean to be facetious but so but even fox news isn't a given uh, trump lobbyist you're right there but of course he was upstaged by a consummate performance whether you believe it or not by Foreign Minister Zarif of, of Iran. And this is another thing which is worrying for Trump. And thinking of Brexit Britain, Britain hung on in there with the EU, Germany and France on the uh, OCPA, on keeping the, thing on, uh, on keeping the thing on track. And this is what is so worrying about the sheer uh, 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 fissure, uh, to use uh, a, a John's expression and an early expression, in Trump policy. Trump said you know, that this is a huge threat from Iran. And then we have Dan Coates uh, collecting all the findings, the assess current assessments of threats to America, handing it over to the Senate and said, Trump is wrong to say that it's all over in the nuclear contest with North Korea. They're still working on weaponry. And he is wrong to say that Iran is building a nuclear weapon. They may be building some rockets, but they're not building nuclear right, weapons. So and what, it, what, it, what, what I would be shocked at with Trump, and we're still waiting for his Middle East program, which has been an enormous part of his foreign office plank since he, 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 he was elected, is that Israel doesn't trust him uh, anymore on this. Even though he touts this huge friendship between yeah, himself and right. Benjamin Netanyahu. And if you read the careful commentary, and it is brilliant at its best, of the secular Israeli press, things like Haaretz, and uh, at times of uh, Israel, even Jerusalem Post, they say, no, Iran is a long game. It's no use shouting at them and saying we're going to bomb you out of existence. We are really worried about their new precision weapons in the north, in Lebanon and uh, from Kunetra opposite the Golan Heights. And it just seemed to be so out of sync as Pence and Pompeo another fundamentalist of a Christian evangelist, Christian Zionist, um, they just seem to be misspeaking. And this is, this is merely compounded a process that started with the Pompeo speech in Cairo, uh, Bolton's mythfire visit to uh, Israel and to Turkey. Uh, and it is the two big strong allies in the region, which was seen one to be America, the other Saudi Arabia, have just got the unreliable brand mm. on them at the moment. And what I'd like to, to get, get your opinion on, John, is, is how the Russians and the Chinese are taking this. Presumably, they're rather gleeful at the way this has played out. Well, yes, the Russians and the Chinese always like to see dissent amongst the Western countries. Uh, what they don't understand is that we reached consensus, we reached joint decisions through a long process of dissent, loud argument, people thumping tables and people having streaming fits at each other. That's the way things work in democracies, uh, which, of course, isn't quite the way that things happen in Moscow. Uh, so I suspect that their glee might be short-lived. But for the time being, yes, both Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping are probably very happy people. And no screaming or table thumping here because finally it is one of the world's most distinguished peace prizes and amongst its recipients are the theologian Albert Schweitzer, 
Archbishop Desmond Tutu and four US presidents, including Barack Obama. So could Donald Trump, who once described himself as a master dealmaker, be the fifth US president to win a coveted Nobel Peace Prize? The Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe thinks so, as he's reportedly written a letter of nomination to the Nobel Committee. This is really a question to either of you, because look, in this world, anything is possible. So it's actually possible that Donald Trump could surprise us all by winning a Nobel Peace Prize. It's also possible we're about to suffer a Martian invasion. Yes, everything's possible, but <laughs> some are more possible than others. Probable. <laughs> How many votes is he going to get? Because people inside in Conclave do have to vote for it. <laughs> yes, that's right. I mean, Shinzo Abe, of course, has played a blinder. He's worked very hard on being Donald Trump's best friend. And he knew how desperate Donald Trump was for a Nobel Peace Prize. He also knew that uh, a, 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 D- Donald Trump getting the Nobel Peace Prize would be a major advance in poor sign aviation. Uh, so he writes this letter of nomination knowing it very well won't go anywhere. Probably a little bit embarrassed that Donald Trump's made it public, but still basking in the approbation for the White House for having done it. But you do have to ask yourself, Robert Fox, that if Donald Trump were to win a Nobel Peace Prize, let's, let's be optimistic for one moment. <laughs> Optimistic. Optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <splutter. laughs> Bang your table, screaming fit. I thought I'd say that. I thought <laughs> no, I'd say that. that. Just to get a yeah. response from you guys. But look, if he if he did win, what message would that send out to the rest of the world? And what would it do to the prize? Would it lose its luster because it's been given to Donald Trump? Oh, the tri- the prize has had its problems in in the past. <laughs> you know, it's offered uh, peace prizes to you know Yasser Arafat and Shimon Peres for resolving the Palestine in Israel uh, contest, which is still roaring along. Uh, it uh, preempted the end of the Vietnam War by giving uh, Kissinger and uh, was it Lee Duc Tho or, or and uh, um, the, the the prize for a war that had eight years to run. I, as far as uh, 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 they were I, being I preemptive, yes, but it has. <laughs> given it, it, it has given recipients even in modern times to really jolly good people too and I do feel sorry for the Malala Yousafzais the uh, the, the, the Médecins Sans Frontières to whom it has meant a lot it has mm. been that little bit of lust a little bit of money in the case of the uh, of, of the NGOs but it's too resilient uh, even it's the one thing that Alfred Nobel was about after Invent, not inventing, but procreating dynamite in the commercial production uh, of it. It is about peace. Yeah, I think the world will will uh, emit an enormous guffaw, a belly laugh, and Trump won't understand why, and it, it would survive it. Right, but if, if he is rejected, do you think that he'll call for the Nobel Committee to be fired? Oh, I, I, <laughs> I, I think that's entirely possible. You're yes, yes you, you're fired. Or he'll try to sue them, another favourite Trump technique. I, I think there's... There's quite a lot of good knockabout comedy in, in this yet. <laughs> OK, gentlemen, we have to leave it there, but that brings us to the end of today's show. John Everard and Robert Fox, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Teresa Mavuli, and our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music next than at 1900 Hours, it's the Monocle Culture Show with Rob Bound. We'll also have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye.